My name is Abby, and I'm the voice behind the Evolving Love Project. In this podcast, my husband and I deep dive into the topics of non-monogamy and polyamory, drawing from our experiences from the last eight years of being consensually non-monogamous. My name is Liam. Whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, curious, or anything in between, we invite you to join the conversation. Let's begin. In today's episode, we talk with Clementine Morrigan. Clementine is a controversial figure, a powerhouse, a writer, and a socialist. She's been making zines since the year 2000 and is the author of several books, including Fucking Magic, Sexting, and Trauma Magic. She is also one half of the Fucking Cancelled podcast. In this episode, we discuss Clementine's work focusing on trauma-informed polyamory, breakups in the age of cancel culture, the importance of extending grace to those with different points of view, and her powerful Instagram page, which has amassed over 115,000 followers. Clementine, thank you so much for joining us. In your own words, can you please tell us about your work with trauma-informed polyamory and your message in this space? I primarily understand myself as a writer. I'm a zinester and I do self-publishing. I've been making zines for like decades. Um, But I also am a polyamory educator and I have a workshop called Trauma-Informed Polyamory and a zine called Love Without Emergency, which is on the topic. And basically... My work in this area is just basically like I have complex PTSD. I am a trauma nerd. So like I read all the books for therapists and I try to best understand like my own situation. And I've been doing that for a very long time now. And so many years ago when I was initially attempting to do polyamory, I had a mental breakdown, like fully and completely had a mental breakdown. I was totally unable to regulate my emotional response. And so, of course, I read everything I could read on polyamory. And like this was, I don't know, I guess like 10 years ago now, it was like 2013, 2014. And there wasn't a lot out there. Like all the advice in polyamory literature was basically like, yes, you might feel jealousy. And if you do, basically sit with your feelings, you know, reflect upon your feelings, maybe see if there's some needs that you could ask for. And then your feelings shall just pass, you know? And I was there being like, wow, but I actually feel like I'm going to die. And I was also acting in ways that I would like high key regret afterwards, you know? Um, And so I really didn't know what to do. And so of course I would turn to the trauma literature and the attachment literature, but all of that literature assumed monogamy. Right. So I was kind of stuck in this place where I really didn't know how to proceed. And so in my general fashion, I wrote about what I was going through, feeling totally like alone and isolated in that experience. And I started writing about just basically like not having any answers, but just being like, wow, I feel totally fucking crazy. And I don't know what to do. And then that writing like blew up. And people were just like, oh, my God, I feel crazy and I don't know what to do. And nobody's talking about this. And so from there, I started doing this work of just trying to figure it out and and really being honest with my audience um, in my own process of figuring that out. And so now it's been many years um, that I have been polyamorous and actively working through these things. And so I basically just try to to normalize the experience of feeling crazy and the experience of having a really hard time with it. I've now met so many people through this work who have shared that experience. And I basically just try to translate like what I've learned from the trauma recovery world and the attachment theory world into um, terms that are relevant for polyamory. Mm. 
And we are so grateful for it. Thank you. Uh, do you feel like, you know, people moving into polyamory, they, they might feel like they've got things together or they know their particular connection with their own attachment styles and this and that. And then all of a sudden they're in polyamory and it's like stirring the mud in such a big way. Do you feel like it would be quite a big opportunity for, for growth in ways that you might not have ever needed to know that you needed to grow in that area? <laughs> Yes. And I also think that like it can be shocking for people and very destabilizing. That was my experience because when I first started um, to actively be polyamorous, I was like, you know, I thought I was at the most stable stage of my life thus far. Mm. You know, I was like sober. I was a few years sober. Um, I was in recovery. I had a therapist. I had been working in therapy for a few years. Um, And so I really was like, of course, I'm ready to do this. I'm more stable than I've ever been. Turns out, wow, you know, I really struggled very badly when I first started. So I think that for a lot of people, um, you know, it can really like shine a light on stuff that might be going on that in a monogamous relationship is still probably going on, you know, but it might just be going on in a more subtle way that is less, you know, visible or less dramatic. Um, and so in that way, polyamory can really be an opportunity for people if they want to, to kind of like face this shit head on and really deal with it. Um, and yeah, like an example that I give, you know, because I think people will ask if, if you have that much of trouble with it, like why even bother to be polyamorous in the first place? Like, wouldn't it just be easier for you if you didn't? And true, but here's the thing is that like my extreme, um, attachment issues that that I have had um which in my case like I have disorganized attachment but in my in my usually I have one relationship where I am extremely anxious preoccupied that's my that's my pattern anxious preoccupied with one person avoidant with everyone else and that's like a lovely combination for polyamory love that for me <laughs> um and so basically like what would what would happen in monogamy is that yeah, sure. I don't have to deal with the issue of like my partner um, dating other people or having sex with other people. But, you know, if you're familiar with like Esther Perel's work, like mm-hmm. I still have to deal with the reality that my partner remains a sovereign being with an internal world that is unknown to me in many respects, who still has their own thoughts, feelings. They can still be attracted to other people. They can still have crushes. They can still have fantasies. And so for me, with my very intense, anxious, preoccupied attachment, the way that looks in monogamy is me like hyper like monitoring whose selfies my partner is liking on social media (laughs) and and making up stories in my head about like who my partner is attracted to and like if they're hotter than me and like all this stuff. Right. So all of that stuff is still going on in, in monogamy for me. Like absolutely. Absolutely it is. It's just that it's it's a little bit more like simmering under the surface and there's less like urgency to deal with it because I could go on like that. Um, just monitoring my partner's social media, like nothing wrong with that at all. And perhaps <laughs> perhaps I would never have to face it or deal with it, right? Whereas when the situation is my partner going on dates with other people, it's way more intense. And so it really forced me to be like, okay, I need to face this and deal with it, which for me is better. I would rather do that than just mm. be monitoring my partner's social media indefinitely, you know? Yeah, we had a, this amazing situation where one of Abby's friends, a, a long-term friend, um, sent a screenshot that she she'd taken of her partner's uh, liking an Instagram of a, of a lady uh-huh. who was, I don't know, maybe mid-50s or something. It was a 
very provocative Instagram going, she's in a monogamous relationship going, oh my God, you'll never believe it. He's been liking this, this lady's Instagram. Mm-hmm. And we thought, this is actually an amazing sign because it shows that he likes mature <laughs> women. He finds them attractive. This is a, right. let's turn this into a positive. What a beautiful thing. Yeah, I was like, that's incredible. And that says so much about his, you know, where he's at and who he finds attractive in the world. To me, if Liam is, you know, finding an older woman attractive, <laughs> I'm like, okay, great. That's good because, you know, I see in this woman a future version of myself. Mm. I see Liam being into it. I'm like, okay, we're good. <laughs> Very much into it. it. It's amazing the community that you've created and, and how supportive it is of your work and all this, all the writing that you do with the, the all the polyamory. And I wonder, you, you mentioned that uh, you found it difficult to find representations of yourself within the literature. Do you feel that there's been a shift to people talking about it more? I'm not sure whether the book Polysecure, I'm sure you're familiar with it, uh, was out when you were initially kind of reading um, all of those uh, things about attachment and trauma-informed uh, kind of polyamory. Um, but do you feel there has been a kind of shift in the cultural zeitgeist, also led by yourself, of course? Yeah, Polysecure had not come out for, I think, like three or four years um, after this whole revelation. So that that resource did not yet exist. Um, And yeah, I do think that is changing. I think one of the issues that we still face as polyamorous people is that even though the polyamorous side is doing more to address attachment and to address trauma, the trauma side isn't necessarily doing much to address non-monogamy. And so I think that there's still a ways to go for therapists to be educated about polyamory, non-monogamy, and also for books, um, resources on like couple stuff and just like attachment stuff um, to have more literacy and understanding of non-monogamy because I think there's a lot there. Like there's a lot of translating that I do because I'll read a lot of those books and I can't get what I get in those books just from polyamory resources. Like I never feel like the polyamory resources go deep enough into that stuff for me to really get what I need. I need to go into the trauma stuff. I need to go into the attachment stuff. But it's a lot of translating and it's a lot of like th- figuring out how this applies in a polyamorous context. And I also think, especially when you're new and if you're very triggered at the time, like reading all the stuff that keeps talking about secure attachment through the lens of monogamy can also be kind of like further triggering because it's like you don't see yourself in it. So mm. yeah, I think there's still a ways to go there, but I definitely think the polyamory side has, has come a long way. And Clementine, you also, you write and speak a lot about cancel culture in general, but also you write about how cancel culture presents itself within polyamorous and non-monogamous communities. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. So I guess first I'll just say something about cancel culture for those listening who maybe aren't really familiar with my work on the topic, because I know it's a controversial topic. So I want to give people something to kind of orient themselves. Basically, Cancel culture refers to harassment campaigns that are based in accusations against an individual. And the way that it works is that not only is the accusation spread around on the Internet, but it also basically makes the person themselves who is being um, canceled contagious. And what I mean by that is that it becomes a social crime to associate with someone who has been canceled. And so when somebody is canceled, there is a huge amount of social pressure on everyone in that person's life, ranging from people who might follow them on social media or people who might enjoy work that they do um, to their closest friends and partners. And so basically anyone who chooses to remain in the life of someone who's being canceled risks 
experiencing some of those consequences themselves because they will also be socially ostracized um, for not abandoning the person who's been canceled. Another part of cancel culture is that the accusations that are spread on the internet are expected to be believed without question and without explanation. And so very often accusations that are made on the internet um, and that are being passed around at the speed of virality on the internet are very vague and don't include specifics um, about what is actually meant by what the person's being accused of, right? So you'll hear people be canceled as an abuser, for example, but what is actually meant by abuse in this context is not um, explained. And then because the word abuse is a very serious word, people are obviously imagining things like domestic violence and like, you know, physical assault, Mm -hmm. degradation, really serious things under the word abuse. But now, currently, the word abuse and also the more general word harm is used in circumstances that do not fit our original understanding and definition of abuse. Mm -hmm. And if you ask any questions about that or you ask for clarity um, about the accusations, what is meant by the accusations, how the word abuse is being used, that's immediately like a cancelable offense in and of itself. So you can't ask questions because people will just be like, believe survivors. Mm -hmm. And so I take issue with this strongly. And I also want to say that I take issue with this as somebody who is a survivor. You know, I'm a survivor of many things. As I said, I have complex PTSD and I'm a survivor of domestic violence, among other things. So I don't appreciate the fact that it has now become kind of like assumed that the way that we support survivors is is just in this way, by by um, believing all accusations without question, without conversation. Because I actually think that that... Um, framework is not good for survivors. And it's um, kind of complicated to explain why, but I will just briefly um, explain this before I go into your the rest of your question. So I'm a survivor of child abuse as well as a survivor of domestic violence and a lot of different violence in my life, right? So I have complex PTSD, very traumatized. And one of the things that happens to people who are abused and have trauma is that we have disproportionate nervous system responses to things in the present that are, we're having a response that is about something that happened in the past in the present, right? And so we can react to things in the present that are not actually dangerous and threatening in ways that are appropriate to things that happened in the past that were dangerous and threatening. And Mm. the reverse is also true. We can also totally not notice signs of actual danger in the present um, because basically our danger radar is all fucked up. Like we have a, a danger radar that is not attuned properly to what is going on. And that's just what trauma is. And so the idea that, you know, if somebody has trauma from the past, that we should believe without question the way that they're describing things in the present is actually like not good in terms of like actually understanding what trauma survivors live with. And so in my own life, I had an experience. It was actually the first um, the first polyamorous relationship um, that I was in where, you know, I really struggled with the polyamory. We ended up becoming monogamous and then we were together for three years and it was a very serious relationship where we lived together, but it was a very unhappy relationship. And I later understand that my partner had an avoidant attachment style and I had an anxious preoccupied attachment style. And so we all know how that goes. And I was very <laughs> unhappy. And I was constantly struggling to get my needs met and I did not have the the skills or the tools to get my needs met. And I eventually decided to leave that relationship. And then 
because I have PTSD, I was so flooded by the experience of leaving that relationship. I felt like I was going to die. And whenever I saw my partner around the city, I would have this extremely intense emotional reaction that was way over the top. And I felt literally unsafe. I felt like being in the same room with my ex was like a complete attack on my being. And I did not want to be around my ex. And so I had well-meaning friends who said to me, don't you think that that emotional reaction is evidence that you were abused, that, that it's evidence that you were in an emotionally abusive relationship? And so this was confusing for me because I was like, well, is it an abusive relationship? Because in my early 20s, I had been in an abusive relationship that was clearly it was a violent, abusive relationship where I experienced both like physical abuse and also like degradation, verbal abuse, you know? And this relationship clearly wasn't like that. But I was like, maybe it's like abusive in a more subtle way. And so I started to take on that narrative. And what happened is, is that I found it extremely regulating because when I could think of my ex as an abuser who was bad, Mm. I could be angry and I didn't have to be with my grief or the intensity of my trigger. I could just get rid of it through that. Right. And then I also had the handy like extra that I could also demand that my ex not be allowed to be in spaces that I'm in. Um, And so I didn't have to deal with the emotional reaction that I was having to seeing my ex. And so that went on for a while. And then fortunately, I have a really good therapist who I started seeing and I still see this therapist to this day. And at some point or another, this this came up. Right. And she knew my history. She knew my trauma. She knew that I'd been in domestic violence relationship in the past and that I have CPTSD. And I had talked about this ex. And then at a certain point, I described this ex as somebody who had abused me. And she point blank said to me, that is not an abusive relationship. It's an unhappy relationship. And it is really important for you as somebody with PTSD to understand the difference. And Mm. it was very brave of her to say that because I think that, you know, she could actually be canceled for saying that if I chose to go on the Internet Mm. and say my therapist did not believe me. But actually, her job as a therapist is to help me discern the difference. Right. And it's very important Mm. for me to be able to discern the difference because that connects me with my agency and it allows me to leave a relationship in which I am not in danger, but I am just not happy and my needs are not being met. And so this is a really important distinction. And it's part of part of the problem right now in cancel culture is that a lot of people, I mean, it's one of the problems with cancel culture, but a lot of people are confusing things like conflict, um, mismatched like needs, um, attachment issues and messy breakups for abuse. And they're canceling people as abusers Mm. when if you actually look at the content of what happened, it's relationship drama. And so that's a very controversial thing to say, I know, but this is what I believe. And so the thing about polyamory is that polyamory in particular is very likely to push lots of these buttons for people. As we've been talking about, many people have very strong, intense emotional reactions to first attempting polyamory. Um, Many people have intense attachment things going on. They may feel like they're dying. And also polyamory can cause lots of conflict, as I'm sure we all know. There can be lots of opportunities for messy conflict in polyamory. And when people don't really know what they're doing and they haven't really built up their skills, um, this can cause huge amounts of conflict. There can also be really major mismatches in needs and desires that can exist in monogamy too, but can become very pronounced and major in polyamory. So if you have someone whose idea of polyamory is they want 
total polyamory with like the opportunity to fall in love. And then you have another partner who's like, no, 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 I just want an open relationship. I don't want you falling in love. But then like you accidentally fall in love or something. Right. This creates the opportunity Mm. for like messy, messy conflict, broken hearts, bad, bad feelings. Right. And so there's a way in which people can be like this person Mm. deeply crossed my boundaries because they broke an agreement. They fell in love with someone else and they shouldn't have, you know? And if you say that in the vaguest way possible and then you put it into a cancel culture context, it's very easy to cancel that person um, when really they didn't do anything wrong. Um, it's just like the messiness of, of relationships and the messiness of polyamory. So, and then also on top of this, mm. polyamorous people just date more people and we have more exes. And so just by sheer force <laughs> of numbers... <laughs> There's more possibility for relational conflict. There's more possibility for hurt feelings and misunderstandings. Um, And so when you put this all together, there's just more possibility for people to to conflate really messy breakups and hard feelings and mismatched needs and conflict with abuse. And then, you know, it makes it really easy if you don't want to deal with your feelings about all of this to just cancel your ex and drive them out of community. And so I have seen this happen a lot. In polyamorous, in polyamorous communities and mm. many canceled people that I talk to are poly and have had these kinds of cancel campaigns happen against them. And so I think it's a big problem that the polyamorous world needs to address and deal with and face. But it's very controversial, so I understand why people are hesitant to do so. It is also an amazing opportunity uh, for growth as well. Some of the most mature breakups that we've seen have been people with open relationships or, or in polyamorous relationships and find a way to actually still remain with these people in our lives. And it's often a difficult thing that, that has to happen. They have to be very self-reflective and they have to really take, uh, you know, look at the, the, the situation really honestly and from kind of this bird's eye perspective that gives them, uh, you know, a sense of real grounding. But it is difficult work, you know, and we've seen that over and over again in, in different relationships that we've had. And almost, uh, almost every breakup that we've had with a, a partner or a lover you know, it's ended in this really beautiful way where we still, you know, all wish each other well. And, and when we see them around, we can have these these nice interactions. And it, I think that also comes down to, you know, we're, we're so aware of these things, Clementine, what you've just shared. And before engaging with a partner or moving, getting caught up in, you know, dating and forming a connection in an intense way, I'm actually really interested to know how somebody will be through you know, a breakup, like what does a breakup mean? Like, can we, can we part with each other in peace? Like, and that can be quite an unusual thing to talk about, especially with somebody who's new to non-monogamy because, or polyamory, because, you know, in monogamous relationships, you don't tend to talk about that at all. But for me, that's actually, it's such an important conversation about what, what does it look like if we are having, you know, our time together, but then at some point we do need to end maybe because they find, you know, somebody else who they want to become monogamous with or primary with or, or just the relationship ends, like as relationships do. And, you know, I think it's a really important conversation to have, you know, at the beginnings of relationships sort of, yeah, but it's not, it's not always easy and it's a little bit unusual. I also think that there can be this huge discrepancy between how people want to be and then how they actually are when they're all triggered and dysregulated, right? And so, like, Mm. a person might answer that question from their regulated, like, highest self who is like, absolutely, you know, my principle is that I want to remain friends with my ex at all costs. And like, you know, and then in the heat of it, when their heart is broken, when they're feeling all of these horrible feelings that are super overwhelming for them, they may revert 
to, you know, a bunch of behaviors that are not from their highest self and that are actually from, you know, their triggered nervous system, dysregulation, et cetera. And so it's like, it's difficult because it's like, I want to hold space for both of those things because unfortunately, most of us are not our best selves all the time. And also, especially people with trauma and people with attachment stuff are really not. And so it's like, how do we, how do we hold both? Like try to be our best selves and also make space for the fact that like breakups can be messy, feelings can be hurt and we may not act Mm. like our best selves. And like, hopefully in time we can like repair that, you know, Mm. me and that ex who I went around falsely accusing of abuse have fortunately made amends to each other. And are now on good terms Mm -hmm. and I have retracted those false accusations and taken responsibility for my part of that. And like they also were like, yes, I was not a great partner and I was totally avoided and had no idea. So like we were able to repair that eventually, but it took, Mm -hmm. you know, years for us to get to that place. And it is such a nuanced conversation. And it's so beautiful that you can have that conversation with your ex because it it really requires both of you to come in and speak really honestly and beautifully with each other and and with a real sense of uh, almost forgiveness from all from both sides. The tricky uh-huh. thing, I think, is that often some conversations uh, like this can be happening in the public domain. And when people take to, you know, whether it's social media to kind of smack down their exes and, yes. and make these proclamations, it can become uh, something that is uh, unretractable in the public sense, even though in private you have this beautiful healed relationship with your ex and I'm, I'm sure have really fond feelings for each other. Yes, I'm grateful to say that I never named them on the internet. I only ever talked publicly about Mm. my ex. But of course, that still can cause damage to the reputation because there are some people who could figure out that my ex meant them. But on a wider sense, I am very grateful to say that I had the Mm. sense enough not to use their name and put them on blast. I was at least therapied enough not to do that. Um, And so, you know, now... Now my amends for me, since I never named them, is just publicly talking about this story, you know, and publicly talking about the fact that I did make these Mm. false accusations. And so anyone who did put it together can also now put it together that that was false. And also just to try to open this conversation for people, because it is a very controversial conversation. And I think lots of people, once they've once they've said something like that, feel like, how can they ever retract it and go back? Um, but like you can and you mm. can be honest about the fact that you've reflected and you were in the heat of the moment. And there also doesn't need to be shame about that. You know, like we don't act like our best selves. Mm. And sometimes we literally like I didn't think I was lying when I did it. You know, when I was saying that I didn't intentionally mm. and maliciously lie my emotional reaction was was really that severe and that explanation made sense to me. So I said it, you know, but now actually having some space from it, I can see that why that doesn't make sense. And this is also why I think it is so important that we publicly talk about what actually is abuse so that people have a better understanding so that they can differentiate between what is an abusive and unsafe situation and what is just an unhappy relationship that isn't working for you, you know? And I think there's um, kind of like a taboo against doing that now. Like you're not really allowed to talk very specifically about what is and isn't abuse, but I think it helps everybody. It also helps people who are in an abusive relationship because then they can be like, oh, this is an abusive behavior, you know? Now, Clementine, with the work that you do, you have your long form writing, you have your trauma-informed polyamory um, workshop. You also have your Instagram page, which is how I came to know your work. Uh, And on your Instagram page, they're like little snippets of of things that are 
uh, you know, encompassing a lot of different topics. You know, you will talk about cancel culture, you will talk about polyamory, um, you'll talk about healing, trauma in general, and also sometimes just funny things. You know, I saw one the other day, it was like, <laughs> you know, look out for snails after the rain, you know. Um, I, I really love it. <laughs> um, you know, your Instagram's always putting a smile on my face um, or connecting with me very deeply, even if it's just a, a couple, you know, a couple of sentences of something that you've written. It's very, you know, really has me reflecting on things. What I really love about your Instagram as well, Clementine, is how, um, you know, inclusive you are across the board to different communities and people who might, you know, think very differently to you. Um, you know, there was one recently that said, you know, a homophobic Christian is not our enemy. And I really love that because it's, you know, connecting with people and our differences and our different realities and, you know, trying to form a connection with the other. I, I love the tone of your writing because it's not, it doesn't come across as polyamory preaching at all. It's just, you know, putting this other perspective out there. I got into a lot of trouble. People were really mad about me t talking about the uh, the homophobic Christian not being my enemy, you know. Um, people were really mad about that. But I... I really think that like extending compassion um, and trying to find common ground is how we're going to move forward. Um, and divisiveness, constantly being divisive is is not going to help us. And um, there I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie um, Pride, but it's this movie that is about this political campaign that happened in the 1980s in um, England um, about a group of queers who did this campaign called Gays and Lesbians Support the Minors. And basically there was a group of minors who were on strike um, and they were on strike for like a, a, over a year. So they really didn't have any money. And this was the 1980s and these were like conservative working class minors. And the queers were like, hey, these miners are on strike. The police keep trying to shut down their their strike. They are being like oppressed. And we as queer people are also being oppressed. So we are going to extend our like solidarity to these miners. And they like raised all this money to um, to extend solidarity to the miners. And the, some of the miners were really homophobic and the queers wanted to extend that solidarity anyway. And they did. They continued to. And then relationships were built, even though a lot of the miners were initially really like, ah, I don't really want to. These people are queer. But they could see that the queers were like, well, we don't care if you're being homophobic. We actually are in solidarity with you, whether you like it or not. Mm. And then in the end, the movie's really beautiful. In the end, like busloads of miners came to the Pride Parade with a huge sign that said miners support the gays and lesbians, you know? And so, oh. I know oh, it really it's really beautiful. And so it's kind of like, you know, in in interpersonal conflict, they always talk about how in relationships like couples who are fighting, for example, we always want to be seen. We always want to say our side. But a lot of the times things start to shift when we are brave enough to say, I see you. I still am not feeling seen and you're still acting like an asshole in a bunch of ways, but I want to, I want to extend like good faith. I want to extend grace. I want to see the best in you. And I want to show you that I'm seeing you. And like, when we do that, often the other person will step up and be like, okay, I'm now willing, cause I'm not just in the defensive mode. I'm now willing to see it from your side. So I think on a political level, we can also do this. And so by extending grace to, for example, a homophobic Christian, I'm also inviting them into solidarity and relationship with me, a queer person, and hoping that we can find a common way forward. So, yeah, that one was controversial, but 
I stand by it. <laughs> what were some of the comments that you received for that? Well, fortunately for me, I have my comments on my Instagram turned off. So um, I don't have people commenting on my Instagram, but people talk about me on the internet and they tag me in things. Um, so I sometimes see it that way. And people were just like doing a lot of feigned shock, like as if what I was saying was just overtly hateful and obviously oppressive, you know, like people were like, oh my God, Clementine Morgan again, like, can you believe this? Like, as if it's so shocking that I would say that. There was a lot of that. Um, And just, you know, people are implying that I'm a bigot. I am a queer person. Like, I am a queer person. And Mm -hmm. so I'm obviously not homophobic. I have a strong value of opposing dehumanization in any and all forms. I think that's very clear in all of my work. So that's not what I'm saying. And I think if people engage with what I'm saying in good faith, they can obviously see that. But I think it's just shocking to people because we have we're really in this culture of like divisiveness. Right. And we're always looking for the enemy and we're always trying to turn each other into the enemy. And so for me to extend this like compassion, solidarity and grace to a group of people who are actively trying to talk shit about a, a group of people that I'm a member of, people are like, how could you do that? That doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, well, we can do it. It's it's called extending grace and compassion. And I think that it's a better way forward. Um, both like ethically and spiritually, but also politically. Something that we talk a lot about um, between between ourselves, Abby and myself, is how kind of non-monogamy can actually draw people together. You know, we meet so many people through the communities, through the conversation evenings that we run, people that we may necessarily mm. not be hanging out with in a pub or not going out, uh, you know, just meeting uh, in our day-to-day life. But suddenly we're in a room and we start to see these commonalities that exist between all of us. And it's such a beautifully unique uniting thing. And it does help bridge the divide and at least start the conversation by finding those common grounds. And then, as you said, you've, you've mentioned the word uh, quite a few times now, it's such a beautiful word to extend the grace to have these very difficult conversations sometimes um, to really try and heal and kind of prevent against all that divisiveness that is, is so uh, kind of omnipresent at the moment. Absolutely. So sadly, dear listener, Clementine's internet uh, decided to crash, and that was the abrupt end of our very enjoyable conversation with her. What an amazing mind and what an amazing woman. Oh, she's absolutely incredible. It was amazing to have a chat with her. She's been, uh, we've been emailing back and forth all about the internet crashing. It's all a bit of a disaster, but we are going to be having Clementine back on our podcast again uh, sometime over the next few months. So that's just something to look forward to. Yeah, take two. And even in that, in those 30 minutes of, of discussion, it was so clear that she had such a beautiful, balanced and nuanced way of, of approaching, uh, you know, her approach to relationships and also her approach to um, topics such as cancel culture. And I took a lot out of that conversation. One of the things that, that really stuck with me was the interactions that she had with her ex-partner and how she'd mm. gone and, and developed a really healthy kind of reframing of that, the end of their relationship incredible self-awareness to be able to look back into that time with her ex and how everything played out and then make amends. It's so important. It's so easy to go scorched earth on these things and and really try and just burn everything to the ground. And in those heightened states of emotional, you know, susceptibility to to making these huge decisions and and potentially doing some irreparable damage. uh, Yeah, it's a a great example of of turning things around. I really resonated with what she was sharing about as far as her insecurity coming from that monogamous perspective in relation to then a polyamorous perspective, because I personally felt like when I was a monogamous 
homeless person as well, I was so much more insecure. I really was. And I think it came from that monogamous mindset of if there is another, if there is an attraction to somebody else or there is some flirtation happen happening, that that could be a real threat to my relationship. You know, with that thing about like in monogamy, if you have feelings for someone else, it means you mustn't really be in love with the person you're with. Mm. I think that's why a lot of people break up because they get a crush on somebody else and then oh, mustn't have been the one. Mustn't have been the one. Yeah, and, and it was fascinating when she was talking about, you know, I thought I had all my shit together and, you know, I was going in in a super strong place and then suddenly the the, the microscope was, was on and it was, uh, it was a real, <laughs> it was really a, an interesting transition for her. Yeah, non-monogamy definitely puts the magnifying glass on everything the good, the bad, mm. the insecure, the passion, the desire, mm. like all of it, like everything can become intensified mm. when we're approaching non-monogamy. And it does move quicker because there's there's more relationships at play. There's more relationships to balance. There's partners. There's partners of partners. And there's just so many uh, possibilities for things to, to ramp up very quickly. Um, and in a way that can catch you a little off guard if, if you're not used to that type of dating. Speaking of partners of partners, what do you mm. think has been some of your connections with partners of partners, like of people who are not people who you're dating who are not me. Oh, interesting. Well, I don't think in the past I've really gotten to know partners of partners because I've always really gotten to know the partners of you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's ever really uh, progressed with another partner to the stage where I'm meeting their partners. Uh, maybe with a, a few little exceptions, but but usually I've found that the people that I'm dating, they have awesome partners because the people I'm dating, are, I think, are really awesome. So mm. they're kind of the worlds of, of awesomeness tend to coalesce. Mm. And we're usually already friends with them as well, I would say. Exactly, exactly. And so a, a small community of, of people kind of all intermingling uh, because we don't live in a place uh, with a huge amount of people. Uh, so the chances of, of already knowing a partner's partner is, is probably pretty high where we live. Speaking of community, a little bit about what's happening with us. So we have our monthly conversation night in Canberra. We will be starting our conversation nights in Sydney as of September. So if you're interested in coming along to that, do send me a message uh, through my Instagram, just letting me know, and I can put you on the mailing list for that. Um, We'll be releasing uh, more information about that soon, the date, location, um, and also have my women's retreat happening in September from the 1st of the 3rd of September. This retreat is fully booked out. I'm just, my heart is bursting. I can't wait to connect with everybody. We've got 20 amazing women coming along and oh my gosh, I'm just so excited about it. I'm grinning from ear to ear. So that's happening. If you missed out on this one, I know I've been getting a few emails from women saying, you know, asking if there's still space. Um, I will be hosting another retreat or maybe another few retreats we'll sort of see how everything goes but next year so you know do reach out to me if you want to know about future retreats and i'll put you on the mailing list for that so i think that's all we have for today thank you so much for listening to our conversation with clementine if you would like to check out more of her incredible work you can find her work at clementinemorrigan.com at Clementine Morrigan on Instagram and her incredible podcast with her partner, Jay, fucking cancelled. So we do encourage you to check out all her work. She is an incredible writer. She's an incredible thinker. And it was such a pleasure to have her on our podcast. Thanks for listening.